Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Season 3, Stroke Series 3 of Ireland's Hottest Podcast featuring... <laughs> Ireland, the world, the, the Northern Hemisphere, surely, was, at least. I was going to build. That was only oh, the first sorry, thing I was going to say. Sorry. Oh, we were going to get into the galaxies. We were going to get into the ever-expanding universe, and then that's contracting. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it's me and him talking rubbish, but factual rubbish. I'm Neil Delamere. He's Dave Moore. This is Why Would You Tell Me That? So if you haven't listened before, one of us um, tells the other ones some facts, and then he brings an expert on in the second half. But listen, it's season three, you should probably know this by now. Well, even if you don't, welcome along. Here's the thing, though, we're starting this season with a bang. This is not just a straightforward kind of, you know, hey, welcome to the Neil and Dave show. We've got a standard bunch of experts. Yeah, that's all happening. But outside of that, we have a very exciting announcement. We're so buzzing about this. So, Neil, tell everyone what's happening. I've gotten a tattoo of Dave's face on my testicles. <laughs> he won't let me see it, but he assures me it's there. It's brilliant because when it's warm, it's Dave when he's a few pounds on him. But then when Dave is training and it's cold, it shrinks. I mean, it was a difficult to do this to scale. Me and the tattoos were there. We had to do it in a sauna. We were doing it in very heavily regulated <laughs> <laughs> temperatures but the likeness is absolutely awesome no we are doing our first... no like i'm glad you had to tell everyone that, that actually wasn't the announcement we had made we are doing a live gig in smock alley in dublin uh, on the 4th of april my friend yes 4th of april in dublin in smock alley why would you tell me that live now we did a live episode in the last series yes we- Viking Theatre in Clontarf. It was brilliant. But obviously, the Viking Theatre, if you know it, it's a beautiful, intimate venue. The numbers are small. Numbers are much bigger in Smock Alley. And we really, really want to fill this one out with as many people as we can. A lot of people got in touch after the live episode and said how jealous they were of the people who were there. Yeah. Because it sounded like it was great fun. It was great fun. We had an amazing expert on the day. Lara Dungan was in. We're not going to tell you who our expert is just yet. And that's not because we haven't booked this person. This isn't some kind of podcast time-wasting where we go, we're going to tell you in a few weeks. We know exactly who it is and we're just waiting for their immigration papers to be processed and that weird, outstanding arrest warrant to be cleared. It should Neil's be fine. testicular tattooist will be joining us. Yes, <laughs> we know exactly who it is. I would go so far as to say, uh, not only are they telling us a very interesting story, but also, I, th- I mean, I think you could class them as a celebrity guest. Not only a celebrity guest, I think everybody listening to the podcast, no, not everybody, but most people listening to the podcast will have heard of this person. But I also think this person will surprise you, because mm. certainly this person surprised us, with their choice of topic. So, look, we don't want to say too much. We just want to let you know that if you want to get tickets before you know who the live guest is, for why would you tell me that live, the second one, uh, in Smock Alley on the 4th of April, all you got to do right now is go to everywhere you get all of our stuff. So, Linktree, 
We have our own link tree. That's always in our bios, in our in our social media. It's in the show notes of this episode. It's on at Neil Delamere Comedy on Instagram. It's on at Dave Today FM on Instagram. It's on at Why Would You Tell Me That on Instagram. Wherever you get content from us, you will see the link to go and buy your tickets to Smock Alley to come and see us on the 4th of April. And I mean, we're hoping it will sell out. Yeah, it'll sell out. I know come lots, on. lots of people who can run around and uh, look like they're taking up more seats than necessary. Um, <laughs> we are proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network, but that is for Anon. What are we talking about? This is Dave launching season three yeah, like, with his choice of not only expert, but also randomness in part one. What do you got for me? It's a big one to put on the shoulders, you know, to launch a season. Mm. But I think if I tell you that I'm going to introduce you in part two to the rock star who voiced the Ra, that maybe you'll be interested. <laughs> oh, there's many things I'm interested in there. <laughs> the rock star who voiced the Ra. Yes, the IRA. Yeah. Had a rock star. Wow. Be the voice of the IRA. I don't want to say too much more, except I will drop one little other nugget of a clue, Neil. Okay. Which is you and I have both worked with this rock star. Now, I, I hasten to add, in his capacity, in another job. We were not <laughs> members of the Irish Republican Army. I would just like to like, get that out there. I remember that time. Do you remember that time we were in a van and we were heading towards a northern bank and you said, I bring you for a surprise for your birthday. You were going to learn how to drive a JCB. And oh. Celine Dion was there. And Celine oh. Dion said, I have voiced the rat. No, um, this is look, this is an amazing story. And one okay. that not many people have heard. I certainly, even though I know this person, even though Neil, I know you know this person, you okay. don't know who it is yet. Neither of us has heard the story before. I certainly hadn't until the other day. And I was like, Whoa. I'm running through people in my head now. Yeah, I can't don't, wait. Don't. I can't wait okay. to find out who that is. That's all coming in part two. In part one, because the crux of that story is about voice, about sound, I thought I would run you through some very interesting sound stories, okay? So have you ever heard of a fella called Jim Reeks? No. McGillicuddy Reeks? Yes. His cousin. Right. No, the Gillicuddy Reeks is a Is he the guy name. who plays the mountain in um, <laughs> Game of Thrones? Half Given that Reeks are mountains. <laughs> okay, so Jim Reeks made all of Apple's sounds, okay? So Jim Reeks worked oh. in Apple from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. He was there with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, and he was making the sounds. So when they built their first Macintosh models, the, the, the desktop computer, their rival to the PC, uh, they needed to have sounds in the computer that would alert you to something like, you have saved your file correctly. That was wrong. Yeah. You've got a new email, whatever it was. Although there wasn't email when they were starting off. But you know what I mean? All the, the, the sounds that yeah. we, we associate with them. Now, very interestingly, most of these sounds were just beeps because that was the era in the 80s. That was kind of all that was being used. And obviously, you know, memory space would have been limited. So you couldn't have like poly, poly, polyphonic chords. You'd have to have kind of single notes and all that kind of stuff. So interestingly, Apple was actually in a, a legal battle with the Beatles. Have you any idea why? Well, because of Apple. They're called yes. Apple and they were on Apple Records. I know yeah, that So they, they they formed Apple Records. So it was their record label, the same name. And obviously a little bit successful, young Apple Records. Uh, so when Apple came along, the Beatles went, uh, no, you can't do that. We're Apple. You can't be Apple. So they kind of went to court, but it was also kind of agreed gentlemanly and all this kind of stuff. The, the agreement was this. 
the Beatles would let Apple be called Apple as long as Apple didn't do anything in the world of music. Now, fast oh. forward decades. <laughs> How did that work out, Dave? Hello, I mean. yes. Not particularly well. But what that meant was then that although they needed, I suppose they're not really music, but they needed sounds in their computer, they, they went so far as to not even allow them to call the sounds music names. So if you had a chime, you couldn't call it chime because chime is associated with music. You'd have to call it something else entirely. So they had names like purr, submarine, glass, frog, inanimate things, animate things that are just aren't music related. Hold, hold on. Submarine. Well, yes, that does seem a little bit like it might have poked the bear. Is, is submarine genuinely one? Yeah, no, it genuinely is a notification sound. <laughs> Was there another sound called yellow? Well, actually, listen to this story. This is amazing. Jim Reeks was a bit of a rebel, okay? So he was the guy, he was a musician, and he was making all these sounds. He kind of wanted to poke the Beatles bear. He thought, like, the, what, the Beatles aren't rich enough, they need to sue us. And don't forget, Apple was a small company, not the giant tech giant that is now. So he had a beep sound, and he was going through names, and he had frog, and he had glass, and he had maybe submarine, whatever. And he wanted to call this sound as a, an FU to the lads. He wanted to call it Let It Beep. Right. <laughs> okay, I like but this actually, guy. Actually, the lawyers within Apple said you can't do that. So he was trying to work out well, what can I do to annoy them a little bit. So he he came back with a name. Just I mean, this, you just put it on the the kind of the the working coded document, and somebody went, "Sorry, what's that?" And he went, "Oh, it's a Japanese word, S O S U M I." They were like, "What?" He's like, "Susumi." Like. Oh, Susumi is a Japanese. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything to do music. Oh, fine, put it in. Sosumi was what he was saying to. And he sneaked that by the, the Beatles. Totally. It's oh, in I, there right now. That would have encouraged me. Like, I, the next one would have been, nah, 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 nah. I'd, I'd have, <laughs> I am the walrus. I would have yellow submarine. Hey, I'd, nude. Whatever <laughs> you needed. <laughs> That's quality. Can I tell you uh, my favorite sound? My favorite wow. awareness of a sound. Well, it's one of my favorite awarenesses of a sound, shall we say. Never, I never noticed this until <laughs> uh, a very specific incident. Um, there was a barber in Edenderry. And what you you wouldn't know this now because you have a fi- fine uh, hirsute head of hair. Um, when lads, sometimes when they go, when their hair starts to go at the back of their head, one of the first signs is that there's a change in tone of the razor as it passes over the back of the head. Oh. So on, on the side, it goes... Right, like this, right? <laughs> and this barber I used to know that men were kind of slightly paranoid about this. So he, I, I, and I watched him do it. He would, he would deliberately talk louder over that bit than other bits. No. So he'd be like, "Oh, where'd you go on your holidays? Oh, Spain." Is it? I like Spain. <laughs> <laughs> so you see these lads walking out of the barber shop, delighted with their haircut, going, um, "How, how, how are you? How are you today? Oh, good, good, got a haircut." Jesus, James really loves Spain, doesn't he? It's, it's just. Really he was contributing to their mental well-being. They yeah, were confident yeah. lads walking out yeah. with their new fresh haircut. Yeah, yeah. I want to play you a sound now, okay? This is the Apple Mac startup sound that we all know so well. Okay, have a listen. That was written by our friend Jim. Lovely chord. Um, does it bear, do you think, a striking resemblance to the following? One, two, three... That is the last chord in the Beatles' A Day in the Life. 
And I don't know about you, but I'm hearing a similarity. I'm not saying that there is. I don't want to get in trouble with Mr. Reeks' lawyers. But to me, it sounds very similar. It sounds to me like if an angel fell into a harpsichord. <laughs> is that too specific a reference? Maybe so. They sound extremely similar. Yeah, I think he did want to. Now, in fairness to him, I love his logic behind writing the kind of Zen one that we now come to associate with, with the, the Mac. Because when Macintosh computers were first built, like all computers, they crashed a lot. So you were constantly hearing the startup sound, but it also meant that you had just <laughs> yeah. lost all of your data. Yeah, yeah. And it used to be a little beep sound. And people used to rage at that. So he went, hang on, I'm going to make a very peaceful, Zen-like sound that then means that when everyone's computer reboots quite regularly, they won't hate it as much. And by the way, he didn't have permission to do this. As in from the Apple engineers, they were like, no, we're not, we're not putting that, we're not changing the sound, there's not enough space, whatever. So he knew a couple of engineers who were on the kind of final panel. So at the very end, when it was too late to make changes, he just put that startup sound in the Mac and then people were like, whoa, what's this? They're like, oh, what, that? oh, that's just the startup sound. No, but we didn't agree to that. Ah, well. It's there now. It's this. And do you know what? This version is stable. I don't think we should really take it out because, I mean, who knows what? If we did this out, the whole thing could fall apart. Yeah, that's a genius idea that if you want something that's reasonably relaxing. Yeah. Uh, that is, I mean, it, it speaks to you're not massively confident that it's not going to be switching off all the time. I think I think what would be worse than that if Steam ever came out with your computer and it had like lavender scent in it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it's it's it, we know this is going to blow up at some point, but it's gonna it's gonna help people sleep. Yeah, and it's a weird chamomile. Maybe when they create the AI robots that will eventually rule us all, as they're getting to the point where they're becoming sentient and taking over the world, they will emit. From, you know, their their cells, they'll just emit lavender to calm us down as they take over the world and rule everything. And eucalyptus and stuff. Of the course. first people first people to know will not be us, it'll be koalas. Koalas <laughs> will just be very slow at getting spreading the alarm. Because we've never traditionally looked at koalas as a, a support animal. It, it'll be no good. It'll be it'll be too late. I'm gonna take a picture of you now, Neil. Okay. Uh, through my computer. We're using my iPhone and it will make a sound. This is the sound. The shutter sound, yeah. Yeah, so that is the famous iPhone camera sound. Actually began life as the Macintosh screenshot sound, which it still is today if you do a screenshot. Um, but that is literally Jim Reek's own Canon AE-1 camera that he had as a kid. Oh, that's cool. So when he needed a sound for the screenshot, he put his camera up to the microphone, took a picture, and that's the sound. But he said today, even today, when he hears that sound on the street... He thinks it's his old camera, is, and he kind of turns around to say, "Hey, who stole my Canon A? Well, oh, yeah, it's someone taking a picture on a knife." I mean, that's that kind of jumps in between charming and surely, surely triggering to the point of mental illness. <laughs> surely, <laughs> if every single camera shutter in the world on an Apple iPhone is setting this man off to childhood memories, he just can't go about his day. I imagine this fella just sitting, just rocking back and forth. Just please stop taking pictures. <laughs> Please. There's no film left in the camera. Stop. <laughs> he made the mistake at one, at one point standing beside a tourist attraction and lost his mind in a psychotic episode. <laughs> just this to tourist bus pulled up and he just went, lost his shit altogether. <laughs> Listen, may maybe Jim's fine. You don't have to worry about Jim because having designed all of these sounds, yeah. how much money 
do you reckon Jim makes in royalties annually? And I mean, I know like it's different. Do you have ha- a figure for this? Yeah, have a guess. I have an exact I actually have an exact figure because I've heard Jim Reeks talk about this, but you you have a guess. Um you okay, so is, is this rounded a this rounded is, figure? Okay. It, this is like every sound on a Mac he has created. Mm. He has created sounds as you just said there, every 100 million. single iPhone. How much? 100 million dollars. 100 million dollars. Zero. Poor Jim Reeks walked away from Apple, left the business in the 90s, and turned down tens of thousands of Apple stock options. He was never getting royalties for the sounds anyway. It wasn't yeah, the way yeah. it was worked, but he could yeah. have like stuck around, had a job doing whatever in Apple, and had his Apple stocks when they floated, and that man would now be a multimillionaire. Okay, so now every time he hears the shutter, he's now. reminded of well, there's no way that man is. Oh, he needs to look after himself. <laughs> Jim, Jim, if I were you, I mean, I'd meditate a lot in a room that has no sound and um, maybe get a Nokia. Oh, how did listen? You just said the exact word I needed you to say to bring you on to the next thing I want to tell you about. Get a Nokia. No, yeah, listen to this. Ah, yes. Right. One of the most famous, probably the most famous ringtone ever. Here, there's a li- I love a bit of irony every now and again. That's actually adapted from a Spanish composer called Francisco Tarrega. Okay. He wrote a piece of music. That's a little bit of it. They turned it into the ringtone. The irony here is Francisco Tarrega, as talented as he was, he hated performing in front of anyone and would only play in front of his friends. Let me tell you how popular his music became because in 2009 that yes. piece of music diddle do diddle do diddle do do was heard <laughs> 1.8 billion times a day 20,000 oh. times a second meaning it is actually Neil and this is crazy the most listened to piece of music ever Please tell me he got some money. No, the man's been dead hundreds of years. Royalties don't even exist anymore. Oh, Copyright, nothing. Oh, my. Look, so he only liked playing in front of his mates. Really, yeah, really kind of insular, insecure. Bit shy. Yeah, did not God, want God, I hope this life. doesn't leak. I hope <laughs> this little composition doesn't leak. W- run me through the numbers again. 20,000 times a second in 2009. <laughs> Well, little did he know, if the, if his ghost came back in 2009, he would be driven to madness. But if he just stuck around for a while, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not hard 20,000 times a day. Uh, no, now. not anymore. Absolutely or 20,000 times. What, 20,000 times a second. A second. A second. Jesus. Where do you stand? Here's my question for you now. Where do you stand on noises deliberately put, being put into electric cars? I am a fan for a right. couple of reasons. Yeah. One, I'm a fan because I think it enhances the driving experience within the car. And okay. two, I think the external noises are important for pedestrians. Right. I did hear somebody making a great point, and it was a guy, forgive me, I can't remember his name, but he modifies cars and makes them electric. And he talked about this, and he goes, I have seen no need to make them sound like internal combustion engine cars, because when internal combustion engine cars came along, they didn't make them sound like horses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but hang on, no, brilliant. Hang on. that's a good point. No, if you pulled up like a 1929 and the set of, you heard, <laughs> yeah, sorry, clippy, Neil. clappy, I clippy, clappy. I had to pull you up on something. The, the internal combustion 
Austin engine does not sound like a klaxon Nauga horn. It goes. But the horn. That's one of the noises associated with a jalopy as it drives west in a John Steinbeck novel. That's what I was doing. Okay, here's the thing, though. I have to disagree with that person because I don't think manufacturers of electric vehicles have made them sound like internal combustion cars. I think they have given them this electric whoosh and hum and it's a new sound so they do sound different but i do think you can hear them now you have a posh car right i do i have a very posh car right this second and you say hello bmw to Mm -hmm. it and that's the activation word yeah have you ever changed the activation word in your car no (laughs) because i recently got a nice car you did did. only this is my fourth ever car in my life yeah and i have changed it to storianto i have not (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) so i have to go storianto open the back window and i cannot help but do the commands then in the original voice (laughs) i love the way then she responds with certainly and she's supposed to be anto I am now opening the back window. Would you not have said, Dear Meredith, please <laughs> well, proceed with, with the opening of the rear aperture. Well, I've never really had a posh car before, so I'm going to keep doing this. <laughs> Sorry, so in a, by the time this goes out, it will be, <laughs> Guten Tag, Klaus. Please check. <laughs> please check the rear tyre pressure of the tyre on the left. By the way, if people want me to keep changing it, please tell me what you want me to change it to. And I will change it to that. Leave comments at Why Would You Tell Me That on all the socials. Go on. Sorry, Dave. Okay. Have a listen to this. That is, uh, you you know what that is, right? I know exactly what that is, yeah. It's the Netflix sound. It actually has a name. It's written T-A-D-U-M, which when I read it, I would say Tadum, but internally it's pronounced Tadum. So in Netflix, they say our Tadum is the name of the sound. The story behind the sound is brilliant, right? So Netflix execs decided they needed a Sonic logo. Okay. You think about all the movie companies, they all have them. Obviously, all the big brands we're talking about here, we're talking about, you know, Intel, one of the most recognizable ones in the world. There are lots of them. And they just, they set the tone. So literally, there's a guy called Lon Bender, and he's an award-winning sound designer and Academy Award-winning, actually. He's just a phenomenal guy. So he was employed by the execs at Netflix. There's a guy, main guy called Todd Yellen. And listen to this for a job description, a challenge. He said, create something that has tension, release, it has to be quirky, and it has to be under three seconds. Boing! <laughs> that has tension. Yeah. Because it's elastic. It has a release. It's under three seconds. I could have done that. Mm, yeah, you could have, but you're not an award, Academy Award-winning sound designer. No, no, not yet. So, what he did was, he created what we now know as Tadoom, as the Netflix sound. But here's here are the elements that he put into it, right? So the first thing he has in there is he had his own wedding ring knocking on a table. Have a listen. The second thing then is he has an anvil, like so a hammer hitting an anvil, but he slowed the sound down loads. Okay. He also has these orchestral hits, these drum hits. Yeah. And then a little piece of music at the end, he's actually written that, and it's called Blossom. And they are the elements that make up Tadoom. Right? You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like a man struggling to describe his marriage through sound. (laughs) It's his wedding ring. It's hope at the start. Right. It's an anvil. 
which you know, he's clearly struggling with the commitment the way to, to the be marriage. dragged down, dragged yeah, yeah, down, yeah, millstone round yeah, the neck. Yeah. Then, you know, maybe practice the rhythm method with contraception <laughs> with the drum. And then it blossoms as he realizes the value of a committed relationship. Oh, God, that's beautiful. You ever thought of being a therapist? <laughs> I have. But, uh, <laughs> there's a couple of things that strike against me. Well, that. here's the thing. Todd Yellen. That's kind of cool. It actually. is really cool. And Todd Yellen, the executive who demanded this, also felt like it wasn't quirky enough. And you know the MGM lion. You know that famous sound, right? Yeah. Let's have a listen to it. Actually, an Irish lion, by the way. An Irish lion, I knew that. Is the lion in the video. I don't think the Irish lion is the lion's sound, but he's yeah. the, the video of the lion. What's his name again? I think it was Cecil. Cecil. Right? Well, it doesn't matter if there's... A lion called Cecil is one of the best things I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, come on, Cecil the lion. Um, but to kind of mimic the MGM lion, Toddy Allen said, yeah, look, I love it. I love what you've done. You're a brilliant lion. Like, I love it. Can you do me a favor? And this is not a joke. Can yeah. you put a goat on the end of it? Okay. Right. Now, I've never, no one's ever heard. Well, like, I haven't heard the actual version with the goat on it, okay? But I yeah. know where the goat is because I've heard someone who has heard it s- describe it as in they've played the Netflix sound and then put the goat, it was their, them doing the goat thing at the right place. So what I've done is I've actually created it with the goat sound at the end. I'm not me doing it. This is an actual goat. Are you ready to hear it? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound like a happy goat either. Like no, I, mean, I thought it was going to be kind of. I didn't choose happy. You know, you, no, you chose. Oh, oh! I've overestimated the gradient of this dam. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, oh! I'm not getting off this. Oh, I mean, I love licking the salt off it, but I have. Oh, I've I've just gotten this wrong. This is how I die. I genuinely thought for a while that this would be a good idea because it was again using that word. It was quirky. Thankfully. Todd Yellen was eventually shouted down and somebody said, you know what, let's do it without the goat. And this is the Netflix to doom that we know and love today. That is absolutely fantastic. I think it might have been called Leo the line. Cecil the line was a different line. The fact that you knew that there was a line called Cecil at all is just good enough for me. Well, it's always uh, Aslan or Cecil. If you're ever in a table quiz, <laughs> go for Cecil or Aslan. There are some very interesting sounds, a very interesting stories, sure. But that is nothing compared to what's coming up in part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? Because, Neil Delmer, I'm going to tell you now who our guest is. You're going to be excited by this. But can I just ask, when, this, when you say you did the voice of the rat? Yeah, yeah. Not, not like in a cartoon or <laughs> no. I, not, not like on film or anything. No, like no, no, no. Or like they, they didn't do the messages. They didn't like have no, one guy. No, <laughs> like no. One guy could really Barry White. Oh, no, yours is the best voice. It's much more intimidating. <laughs> not like that. No, not like that. No, there was a very specific set of circumstances that made uh, it necessary. No, I think I know. Okay, I think I know what that for is. For the IRA and Sinn Féin to have a voice, which we will explain yeah. in part two. But the yeah. person, Neil, the rock star who yeah. voiced the Ra, who you're going to meet again in a second you haven't seen in a while, is none other than the lead singer of The Undertones and former Today FM employee, Paul McLoon. Paul McLoon? Paul McLoon no voiced the IRA and Sinn Féin, and we're going to talk to him about it on Why Would You Tell Me That in a second. He's got some explaining to do, David. <laughs> 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Right, welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? And I... Uh told you in part one that I would introduce you to the rock star who became the voiceover for some political organizations and kept it a secret for all these years. Paul McLoon, broadcaster and lead singer of The Undertones. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks so much, Jess, for having me on. You made me sound much more interesting than I, in fact, am. <laughs> no, on the contrary, we're underselling your your interesting career and life. Of course, Neil and I both worked with you in uh, in Today FM. In Today FM, yeah. Of course. Wonderful times. Happy carefree days. Look, let, let's get down to the, the, the meat of the subject, as it were. And can you, for our listeners who maybe are either too young or far removed geographically, can you paint a little picture of what the situation was like in Northern Ireland in 1988 when Margaret Thatcher's government decided to ban the voices of Sinn Féin and loyalist paramilitaries and, and people on both sides of the, the Troubles and just said, you're not allowed to talk on, on broadcast anymore. Yeah, I mean, it was very, you know, they were very different times, as, you, as you've kind of um, alluded to in your question there. It's hard to imagine, really. Um, I think unless you were, I mean, I don't want to sound all sort of you, if you weren't there, you wouldn't understand. Mm -hmm. I don't mean it like that, but it it does take a bit of a feat of imagination to put yourself uh, back there, even for me. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people who who grew up in it. And it does seem strange to think back to a time when such a draconian kind of measure would be even countenance. But of course it was, it was, it had been 
countenance and in fact enacted in in the Republic of Ireland as well. So you know it's 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 not a unique thing, but it was a very much a a symptom of the time and the very, I guess, dysfunctional nature of of politics, um, certainly in the north of Ireland at that time, and the very real conflict that was that was still you know, unfortunately still acting itself out uh, in the streets of Northern Ireland and, of course, beyond, which was what was basically forcing the hand, I think, of the Thatcher government at that time to, to either try to accommodate where republicanism was going in some form of fashion or to just stamp down harder on it. And Thatcher being Thatcher, of course, I think was was always likely to take the latter option. Mm. Um, the woman wasn't known for her touchy-feely kind of approach to things. And it was a draconian kind of move, and it was very much in in the image of that government at the time. Of course, it was slightly deceptive because, you know, soon after that, things would start to move. We weren't to know about it, of course, for maybe a wee while later, but things were starting to kind of uh, coalesce into something resembling something that might lead to a peace process behind the scenes. But in the meantime, things on the street and things... Uh, politically, societally, uh, militarily in the north of Ireland were very, very grim. It was a very bad time. Um, things were in the mid- middle of a, I think, a bit of a flare-up, if, if memory serves. Things had got very bad towards the, the latter part of the 1980s uh, in terms of the violence. It was certainly amplified to a degree it hadn't been for a while, certainly since the hundred strikes. And living there, as you did, uh, on the Bogside in Derry, is that right? Is that where you're from? Absolutely, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what what was life like that seems so alien now and seems so different? Well, I mean, obviously, I have images from living in Dublin at the time, but I have images of, you know, the military vehicles on the street uh, as well as the, the flashpoints in actual violence. But the fact that this was a military society. But absolutely, 100%. It was. We were in, in, a, in a war zone. I mean, it isn't overstating the situation to, to, to describe it as such. I think, you know, when you have military vehicles, armed foot patrols of soldiers in camouflage in an urban area. <laughs> I never quite understood that. But anyway, uh, I didn't see a tree until I was 15. But, you know, um, these guys are walking around in camo with radio packs. There's armored, I mean, not tanks as such, but these big six-wheeled armored vehicles were a a common sight, an everyday sight, helicopters constantly overhead. Uh, that was just the British Army. Then there was the police, who themselves resembled an army. Um, they were very heavily armed. It's probably a bit more like what you'd see today, but back then, um, it certainly wasn't the Bobby on the Beat that you might see in Shrewsbury. You know, it was a very different um, entity altogether. And they drove around in very heavily armored vehicles and engaged in, in a lot of very heavy-handed Crowd control, riot control, whatever way you want to describe that. But people would get hurt all the time in ways that it just didn't happen in Great Britain, in England, Scotland or Wales. It was an everyday occurrence in Northern Ireland for someone to be seriously injured or killed by the security forces with whatever they describe as legitimate cause or, or whatever, you know, whatever way they chose to describe it. It simply wasn't happening in any other part of the United Kingdom. Um, with the regularity that it was occurring in the North. And I'm not talking about the AIRA, I'm talking about civilians. Oh, yeah. So yeah. It, it was a war zone. And the way that that, I guess, impacted on you, I suppose, came down to, like everything else, like any kind of stressful situation, it 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 finds your own test points, you know, the points at which maybe you're, you're, you're feeling the stress and not, you know, and, and if it's a, if it's a very prolonged, 
case of that where where certain points of it are, are worse than others, but there's a constant, constant, shall we say, background hum of this yeah. uh, kind of security obsessed government that you're you're living or or state that you're living in. Yeah, I mean, some days were worse than others. There were many good days, fine days, where you just didn't much think about it, but it was but, still but, be there. But it's always there. It was always absolutely. There. And then there would be the days, and they were not few where it would be right in your face and there was no avoiding it. And how you responded to that, I, I guess, was just down to you as an individual and other factors in your own psychological makeup. But a lot of us, I mean, I, I, you know, you don't have to be a, an expert in psychiatry or anything to, to, to know and to point out that the, the mental health situation in the state of Northern Ireland is bad. It's very, very bad. And that is undoubtedly a lasting legacy of, of, of those times, you know. So when the government said that we cannot hear the voices of um, loyalist paramilitaries, of Jerry Adams, of Mark McGuinness, did people immediately know in terms of the BBC and ITV what they were going to do? Or was there a period of, well, we could dub these, we could not dub these, we could get an actor? Or like, how soon did they figure out what approach they were going to take? I'm a wee bit fuzzy on that, Mike. Guess is I I was working at Radio Foil at the time um, in a in a very very junior capacity, but my sense of it is that there was initially a lot of protest about it, a lot of outcry from the NUJ and, and you know people like that. Um, there was then I think a pretty swift uh, because you know these people aren't daft and and they know how to they know how to dissect a piece of legislation because it's part of what they do as reporters. So I think they swiftly spotted the apparent oversight loophole in, in the legislation that, that didn't specify the actual words of, of the actor in question. But right. it, it, so it left the door open. I think it was a bit of, well, you didn't say, you didn't say we couldn't. Yeah. You didn't specifically rule this out. So we're going to do that. And I think that was spotted pretty quickly. I guess somebody maybe in a slightly more senior position or with the newsroom um, at the BBC back, back, back at that time would have a better insight uh, on that than I, but I seem to remember the actors' voices thing coming in pretty quickly. You mentioned Radio Four there, so you were obviously working in radio at the time. Yes. What else were you doing? What, what What was your life at that point? Were you full time radio? Were you radio and music? What were you doing? Well, I was I was in a band in my spare time, a band called the Carolines, my first proper band uh, with Billy Doherty from the Undertones. Yeah, oddly enough, <laughs> um, and we were playing. We were doing quite a lot of playing, um, but that was you know like most guys. In band, most people in bands at that time, um, it, it, it would be a fairly well, I guess, still to this day, it's a fairly part time thing mm. until you can make it a proper job. And the Carolines, unfortunately, never quite got to that level. <laughs> but uh, I was doing that as much as I could. I was very on the music scene in Derry, I guess you could say. Uh, so there was that, uh, but it wasn't the, jo- the job. And my role at BBC Radio 4, I actually started, keep this as brief as I can for the, for the sake of the the yawning listeners, but uh, I started with um, Jerry Anderson, a broadcasting legend, Jerry Anderson up there uh, in 85 when I was 17. Uh, I'm basically doing funny voices on the radio, right. basically doing what I then went on to do with Mario Rosenstock at Today, Today FM initially as the producer mm-hmm. of, of the Ian Dempsey Breakfast Show, which is when I joined Today FM. Yeah, so producing that was very much an echo of how I'd started in, in radio, really, because here I was. After forswearing doing funny voices on the radio ever again, I'm back in Dublin and part of part of my gig that I bring on my own head as producer of the show is doing more funny voices on the radio. So basically I started doing that uh, with Jerry and 
kind of just from being around, you know, that's how it is with, with radio and a lot of other industries. If you're sort of around a lot, you know, at least back then, people will start to go, what's your man doing here? Give him something to do. What, what are you for? <laughs> I know so many people in radio who've got yeah. their starts exactly like that. Just give that guy something to do. I'm sick looking at him. Send him out somewhere to do something. <laughs> so I, I kind of became that guy and I got a gig as a researcher. So I would be around Radio Foil a lot then. So I'm still doing funny voices and doing a bit of researcher work and doing packages, what they used to call packages, which was little pre-recorded inserts that you totally produced yourself. Yeah. Great training, fantastic mm. training, uh, because you learned how to edit a report. You learned how to voice a piece. You learned how to make a story and, and do it in a prescribed time frame. You had, you know, this has got to be eight minutes. That's got to be 10 minutes. It was a great, great production training in the field, if you like. Um, so I, I, I really I really valued that. And they would send you out with a your reel-to-reel tape recorder. Like, these things are beautiful oh, yeah. machines. I mean, they're just they're just poetry. Uh, they're, they're beautiful, and they sound – nothing sounds like them. And I know old analog heads always say that, but genuinely nothing sounds like these <laughs> things. And they were those little reel-to-reel short tapes – and you take a few of those out and spare batteries. <laughs> and, <laughs> and just, oh. By the way, all the technology in the world, that hasn't changed. Now it's just yes. a, power, a power pack for your iPhone. But you got to go out with a spare one. There's no question. Absolutely. Yeah, at first rule. Really, We've done a lot of these episodes, and I've never heard Dave make that noise before when you mentioned it, by the way. He just went, oh, yeah. Rough. Yes. It, it oh hit me in a, in a special place. <laughs> yeah. um, so at what point then did someone say to you, hey, Paul, guess what? Yeah. Your your next gig is being the voice of Martin McGuinness and Jerry Adams or whoever it was. Well, I think it was. Well, I certainly tend to slightly fictionalize things in my own head, but I mm. I think what happened. They were definitely was, real, Paul. Though they were definitely real. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no. The general story is real. But how I how I came into it, I I seem to remember, and I could be wrong about this. So apologies to anybody, sort of not named but involved. Uh, was one of the newsroom guys just approached me. I think they were they had a breaking piece of news, probably not with Martin, probably with Mitchell McLaughlin, who was doing fronting a lot of the Sinn Féin negotiation stuff at the time. Uh, he wasn't chief negotiator, Martin was, but Mitchell was the mouthpiece to the press for a lot of it, certainly in Derry. And I think they had a very late-breaking but significant piece of news. They needed some audio and the guy that they normally had or the guy they were using at the time was sick or it was too short notice or something. But it was again, a quiet, it was kind of like, well, what does that guy do? Get him, <laughs> get him to do it. He's from Lisfannan Park on the bog side. He can sound like Martin McGinnis. Yeah, so, uh, or Mitchell McLaughlin or whoever it was. And I think it was that. I think it was as casual as that. And I, I hadn't done that before, but I, I kind of knew the, the score with it. And... Uh, you know, I was used to, to speaking and I was used to doing packages and funny voices and stuff like that. But so did I you guess use your own that. voice or, or were you kind of asked to ape them, you know, like do, do a version of them? Or was it just like, look, just read it out deadpan with no emotion and keep it like, you know, that was the whole, I guess, the whole point of the censorship was to try and yeah. dehumanize them and, and all of those things and, and, and take any kind of... Um, glamour away from them you know so what yes, was the and, instruction? And so there was no instruction but i think there was a calculation that i think you're absolutely right i i, I think that the hope was the nuances of what was being said would be completely lost hmm. and as anybody involved in the communication business knows it you know what you say is only half the story how you say it is the other half so yeah, I think there was a calculation that it would be uh, diminished. 
But I was given no instruction to neutralize what was being said. And I actually kind of was aware of the fact that a lot of stuff would be read out, you know, because you'd hear it. By that stage, you were used to hearing it. The voice of Martin McGuinness has been brought to you by an actor, you know, and it would just be this really neutral kind of very robotic sort of, and I thought, God, that's really, that's doing a disservice. No matter what you think of uh, the people and Mm. what they're saying, whether you agree Mm. with them or disagree with them, the idea of gagging um, a politically mandated party to me was, was wrong. You know, it was just plain wrong that they should be treated any differently than any other mandated political party, irrespective of what they stand for was wrong. That was my position. So I would quite deliberately try to not mimic the voice of, although I could have, I was pretty good at doing people's voices. I still am. Ish. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I could have done that. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, and I, I decided not to do that as such, but what I did do was try to very much duplicate the cadence of what was being said the rise and the fall, the pauses, the emphases, all those things, I would try to say it as close as I could. But all you had was a script of a fairly accurately uh, transcribed piece, to be fair, of what was said. Mm. One listen to the tape, and then you got to do the script Go. with trying to remember as much of that kind of information that isn't in the words, as I say, how it's said rather than what is said. Uh, and you try to just duplicate that. I think it's more of a relief that you didn't get any instruction because I think we've all done voiceovers for people in a, in yeah. a booth. And the more people there are in a booth with some <laughs> sort of commercial campaign, the worse it's going to get. So the idea that somebody's oh. sitting there going, um, Paul, I mean, I liked it, Paul. I really did like it. But can you emphasize Chuck <laughs> of Chucky a little bit more? I don't know. I thought a day was coming, but I didn't think it was soon. Well, actually, Fiacra, I think it would be great if Paul, yeah. Paul, are you, are you there? Yeah, Paul, hi. Hi, Maria. Hi. Uh, I, I think if it was just a bit, you know, slower, but kind of faster. Does that make sense? Yeah. If you could, if you could smile, smile on the first syllable, but also smile with your eyes, but not with your heart. Is that okay? That makes can, sense, guys. Can, can Paul hear us, guys? Can Paul hear us in there? <laughs> yeah, I'm here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I've just been sick. <laughs> Here, John, just 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 fly this up the flagpole. Just, just spin around your top knot and see who salutes. What do you think of a Paul doing this in a Jamaican accent? No, nope. okay, okay, no, okay, okay. You Perfect. do know I'll never get another VO gig ever. <laughs> so it, it was a very quick turnaround. A lot of times for this, did you ever have to do it retrospectively? Like, did they ever, you know, go look? We need something that we have a tape of Martin McGuinness in you know, 1982 that we need dubbed. We need to pull that, but we can't put his voice on. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm I'm sure maybe I was, and and I'm sure they must have had to redub the archive stuff too. That's a really good point, actually, Dave. Mm. I, I don't remember being asked to do anything like that. What you got to bear in mind is this was all as the, as the negotiations that led to what, you know, what was effectively at this point, the roots of the peace process. It, it was all while that was hotting up. So it was all very current and all very now and happening now. And gotcha. there, there seemed to be less emphasis on anything Jerry Adams might have said in 1981 about Bobby Sands or something. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. The news was almost by simple reality of the fact of the of the time was was moving very much beyond that. There was very little looking back. It was all very much about the moment and what are the shinners? Where are they at? Are we anywhere near some sort of breakthrough here? You know, yeah, it was all okay. very. It was a very interesting and very kind of 
a very news busy time, which was which was good news for me because I, I meant I was getting a lot of these little gigs, you know. <laughs> so who who did you do then? You did Martin McGuinness. Did you do because obviously he's from down the road. Did you do Jerry Adams as well? And and, and also, yes. If you met these people, like I've been to Derry a million times, uh, Dave won't know this stuff. But the statistically, right. the likelihood of a person called Doherty being in any group of four people in Derry is very very high. It's actually mandatory. Every band has a Doherty. That's just the way it works. Um, Absolutely. If you did you bump into these lads and did they go you, you that's kind of right or did you ever hear back what they thought about your not impression but your interpretation of them not directly and i, I bumped into well certainly mitchell and and martin would be in the radio Foy studios you know a lot because they'd be up recording the tapes that i would then read you know? <laughs> yeah. um yeah. and even as a as a kind of a just researcher come whatever uh, at the station at the time i would occasionally just look after people when they were in to do, like say for instance, they were doing an interview, but the interviewer was in Belfast, so they'd be using a remote unattended studio in, in foils, like a little broom cupboard of a place down the corridor uh, where you'd often sit or have people sit in and they would talk down the line to Belfast. Uh, obviously somebody needs like a, a kind of a, yeah, an assistant producer researchers kind of role. Yeah. You'd look after the guest and kind of make sure that the tape was done okay and everything. So I would look after Martin and Mitchell in that, in those, in those situations a lot, but no, it was, if they, it's a funny one because if they knew that was me, they never let on. Right. And they were always very nice, particularly Martin was always very, very polite and very nice. And I know he knew who it was because I heard from other people that he would occasionally go and it is, uh, and is your man McLoon uh, going to be? Because uh, he, he heard I was, he'd heard me, and he, he'd heard he'd kind of gone. So uh, who's your man doing me today? Well, this moment, oh, he's not bad. Are you? So he knew who I was, but it, I don't know whether he ever put a face to the name. Right. But he certainly he knew who I he knew I was Paul because I go okay, Martin, you're going down to the on a ten. Oh, okay, Paul, right? Thanks very much. And he must have known, but he didn't say because I I get the impression Martin didn't miss much, mm, you know. Yeah. So. I think he probably knew, but didn't didn't maybe think it was important or relevant or even remotely interesting to bring it up. I guess it was just a fact of life, and maybe he was just happy that it was. Maybe he didn't want to freak me out, you know. He's just happy that a boy that he he liked the voice of was and and who he thought I thought he read me beautifully <laughs> on yesterday's. Did you ever have any fear about doing that job? Because organizations on like both sides were subject to the ban, and. Would your own pol- yeah. political leanings or experience have ever come into a factor? Like, if, was there a side of the argument you wouldn't have voiced, for example? That's an excellent hypothetical, and I wouldn't know until it was put to me for real. But all, all I say is, is genuinely, as for as for the application of the ban to the other side of the divide, so to speak, uh, that was a bit of a red herring because at that time their political represent, representation wasn't officially at any rate the DUP or the UUP gotcha. or, or any of the so-called legitimate, you know, unionist slash loyalist um, representation. So they didn't have the political representation. So the UVF as such or the UDA representatives from those organizations were rarely, rarely front, interviewed yeah. on, on TV. And if they were, they'd be sitting in front of a red, red hand flag with a, with a, you know, with a, a gun, you know, it was that kind of, we spoke to a UVF man, you know, so it, it was quite rare and sort of world in action, rare sort of stuff. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And in those circumstances, they would be voiced by an actor. I mean, it did happen, but it wasn't where the focus was politically. The focus was against Sinn Féin. It was very much to uh, inhibit the ability of Sinn Féin to communicate 
And as a legitimately mandated political party, that sat badly with me. So I'd like to think that if the same had been applied to the DUP, uh, I would have felt the same. But I mean, the, the chances of that ever happening were zero. Um, it was not an even-handed measure. You know, it was it was it was a biased measure by a government that were hostile to republicanism, were hostile to the nationalist slash republican position, and it was a reflection of that. So it's a very hypothetical academic question. I was hoping that you all sat around then, you and your you doing one side, and then your compatriots doing the other side, all sitting around like talking about rep theatre, all just drinking brandy, going, "Oh, oh my <laughs> god, oh your 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 Johnny Adair was magnificent, darling, absolutely oh, magnificent." Darling, I loved your Mitchell McLaughlin. <laughs> oh. The way you slip in just bits of Troon, where he lived for many, many years, into the action at the end, absolutely delightful. It's so subtle, darling. Um, no, in fact, the, the funny thing was, just to actually answer the question of Dave, and I probably went off on a tangent on you there, Dave, sorry about that, but I didn't know who any of the other guys were. There was a certain anonymity to it, and I think that was an abundance of caution. I really don't think there would have been any serious consideration given to my safety mm. or sorry, the question of my safety um, in doing this. But there was an anonymity that, that attached itself to it, I guess, as I say, just as a, as a precautionary thing. So I didn't know. I knew there was another guy in Derry that had been doing it. He was, I seemed to be getting a lot of it by this stage, but I'm sure he was still getting the odd bit. <laughs> um, and I know there was other, obviously other people in other places, particularly Belfast. There were several, several people in Belfast doing it there uh and i didn't know who any of them were i i we you know we genuinely didn't know each other and it wasn't really a thing between any of between us and also i wouldn't have got to sit around the table with the brandy or anything because i wasn't an actor they yeah. were you know how actors are they wouldn't have talked to me <laughs> i was a mere civilian but what is what is coming across in this though is that paul is first and foremost a performer like me and like you, Dave, uh, but particularly a live performer like me. And what's important here is that he would jump on the other car- fellow's career who used to do Martin McGuinness for a job. <laughs> and as a fellow performer, I think that is what defines us. The the ambition to crawl over broken glass to do a job. That poor fella is unemployed now. Don't know who he is. Never heard from him again. He's not doing our podcast. Paul McLoon's on our podcast. <laughs> All right. Um, as a teenager in the Republic, I have distinct memories of feeling like this is really weird, really unfair. And I wasn't at that age understanding, you know, government censorship none of that was clear to me because I was just a teenager. But I remember thinking that it just felt like, as you said, that this was just really draconian tactic of like, this doesn't make any sense. And then to hear your voice, which I didn't know at the time, but to hear a voice of someone, I always thought to myself, and again, as like, you know, maybe as a little churlish teenager thinking, why don't they get a French man speaking English? I know Neil joked earlier on about a Jamaican accent, but it, it did occur to me. I was like, why are they vo- like dubbing the voice with a person who sounds like it could be the person I'm listening to, who is who has dubbed it so well that the mouth is moving and the words are happening in my ears? You know, or if it was a, a distinctly posh English accent, or as I said, a Frenchman saying "We oui, as Sinn Fein sings that Jesus," like that would have been that would have, there would have been ridicule then. But I thought that was the point, and it just seemed counterintuitive a little bit to me. 
Yeah, but what happens there is by, by getting as close to the original words as possible, uh, the public is looking at that, I would assume, as, as, uh, as a, somebody watching it. It shows that what the media thinks of the ban. The mm. media thinks the ban is ridiculous, yeah. clearly, because they are trying to give you as much as you, as close as you can to the original words and even intonation. So it's completely counterproductive, it seems. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you should mention about the, the funny accents, though, because there was a very funny sketch around that time by uh, Chris Morris. Oh, oh yeah. Where <laughs> you got to look at it. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Uh, is Brass Eye or the day to or the day to day or you know yeah. one of those wonderful regal news uh, spoof shows that he did, the, which the real news just looks like these days. And uh, yeah, there was a thing about Sinn Fein. Inhale helium, helium yeah, before yeah. giving his answer. Steve oh, yeah. Coogan. It was, it was yeah, actually it, Steve Coogan that did. Was it? Was it? Yeah, yeah. Sinn yeah. Féin have so far denied they are backing the campaign. Earlier today, I spoke to their deputy leader, Rory O'Connor, who under broadcasting restrictions must inhale helium to subtract credibility from his statements. So what's your initial statement? <laughs> These incidents are inevitable given the position of the British government. You do support this campaign then? The IRA have been forced into this position. So you do support this campaign of violence? The I Sinn Féin is a legitimate political party. (laughs) (laughs) Like all great satire things, I think it was there was maybe a bit of truth Mm, to it. You know, it was kind of like maybe it was somehow. Do you know that thing when you sort of think somebody's done something a bit stupid there? They left the door open there, and then you think they couldn't be that stupid. They must have done it for a reason. And maybe maybe it was. Maybe it was kind of a perverse sort of double sort of double bluff of they yeah, they'll have to get actors to do it and it'll sound ridiculous and they just they'll, you know nobody will listen and they'll tune yeah, yeah. They'll get guys to, to do it in a French accent <laughs> because they'll be annoyed. <laughs> so yeah, as you say, playing playing it as straight as possible maybe was the smartest I response. So. You know? We haven't haven't even touched on your other career. Are the undertones currently on tour and where can people see them? Well, we will be. We're not at the moment, but we will be. We're um uh, our next gig is in. Edinburgh, Scotland, on the tenth of March. So how long is that? Yeah, not long to go now, boys. Okay. Uh, and then we're yeah we're we're, we're we've got a lot of UK dates and a lot of festivals, a bunch of little Irish festivals that we're doing, a whole scattering of them actually. They all, all they all look great. And kind of through the summertime and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you you kind of catch us almost anywhere throughout the, throughout the summertime, and we're going to Scandinavia for the first time ever. So we're looking forward. Oh, to that. amazing! So, yeah, but a very busy, very busy between now and the end of the year. What you don't know about this entire podcast interview is it's a big meta in joke. In that I've had a guy transcribing all your words, and you're going to be played <laughs> by somebody else, a, a French Scandinavian, and Mario Rosenstock <laughs> is going to double. Yeah, exactly. What a what a mind fuck that would be. If Paul listened to himself, but it was somebody who sounded yeah, that would be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, not so funny now. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Paul McLoon, uh, lead singer of The Undertones and former voiceover artist to Who Knows Who. Thank you so much for joining us and taking part. Why would you tell me that today? Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Cheers, lads. Thank you. Okay, welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That, Neil Delamere. Paul McLoon was the voice of the IRA and Sinn Féin, and we never knew.
a brilliant story and he's um he's brilliant at telling it as well i mean you can see why paul was on the radio for so long he's so smooth isn't he yeah he completely. is just so smooth. a lesson to us all like i think i'd be telling people that when i met them first i think yeah. i'd have it on a card of some sort like, i'd be sh- shaking like, my hands going yeah 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 just uh, never really brought it up in conversation did you not like one of the yeah. most interesting stories i've ever heard anyone ever tell i think there's a very good chance if i was uh, in a different time and had a tinder bio i think it, it might be on that <laughs> It might even it be on that. Would. But no, yeah, that's it's great to have someone who's there putting it in context, not mm. only having done the voice, but also kind of being able to say, this is what he felt, and this is what people in the media felt, and this is what people um, who listened to it felt. And uh, I thought he summed that up expertly. So well done you for getting Paul McLoon tell us about a fascinating time in Irish history. Yeah, no, he did. He really painted a picture for us. Um, okay, we must remind you that we have uh, the very exciting news that a live show is happening on April 4th in Smock Alley Theatre in Dublin. The tickets are on sale right now. Get your hands on them before it sells out. The numbers are bigger than the last one we did, but not that much bigger. And uh, you can find the link to the tickets anywhere you find any information about us. So you can get us on Instagram. You can get us on our link tree. We are at Why Would You Tell Me That? He is at Neil Dalmer Comedy and I am at Dave Today FM. Uh, that's how you'll get in touch with us. But Neil, tell us what's coming up in next week's episode. Okay, Dave, right? Imagine something in your head. Imagine your dog, Lola. Yeah. Can you see her in, her in your head? There she is, yeah. Gorgeous black and white thing, yeah. Well, did you know some people can't do that? It's called aphantasia, and we're going to meet the scientist who coined that term next week. <laughs> Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.